0: This episode of Novara Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you.
1: Welcome to Novara Live. I'm Michael Walker. Tonight I will be joined by Aaron Bastani, but you're going to have to wait a little moment. Um, he's having some technical problems, but we will be speaking to him very soon. Um, big stories tonight. We'll be discussing more on Rupert Murdoch calling it quits. Um, an interesting clip of an NHS nurse calling out a Tory minister. And a big question. Why did the West lose the war in Afghanistan? We'll speak to the makers of an illuminating documentary on the subject. First story. Keir Starmer has been ruthless about avoiding making commitments or even comments on issues he thinks will inspire Tory attacks. But in the last two weeks, that seems to have changed. Now, the shift mainly involves the Labour leader's plans for relations with Europe. On Monday, Starmer told the Financial Times that he would seek to rewrite the Brexit deal and put closer trading relationships with Brussels at the heart of his growth policy. Then, last night, Sky News began heavily promoting a clip of a talk Keir Starmer gave last weekend in Canada, where he said this. Most of
2: the conflict with the UK being outside of the UK arises insofar as the UK wants to diverge and do different things to the rest of our EU mm. partners. Um, obviously, the more we share values, the more we share a future together, the less the conflict, um, and actually, different ways of solving problems um, are, are, are become available. You know, actually, we don't want to diverge. We don't want to lower standards. We don't want to rip up. Um, environmental standards, working standards for people at work, um, food standards and all the rest of it. So suddenly you're in a space where, notwithstanding the obvious fact that we are outside of the EU and not in the EEA, there's a lot more common ground than you might think.
1: Now that clip prompted headlines like this, Starmer lets cat out of the bag on Brexit betrayal. That's from the Daily Mail. In an attempt to reassure Brexiteers, Keir Starmer said this to broadcasters today.
2: I have repeatedly said that there's no case for going back into the EU, and that includes the single market and the customs union. Equally, uh, we will not be a rule-taker. The rules and laws of this country will be made in Parliament according to the national interest. But that does not mean that a Labour government wants to lower standards on food, wants to lower standards on people's rights at work. The Labour Party has been completely consistent on those issues for many, many years. There's no surprise here. And incidentally, this is also government policy. No case for rejoining the EU. No case for the customs union or the single market. Laws made in this country according to the public interest. But that does not mean, that does not mean that a Labour government would lower standards on food or lower the rights that people have at work. That's been consistent Labour Party policy for years. Incidentally, it is also government policy.
1: Aaron, I think we've got you now. I want your, your thoughts on this. I mean, we talk about Keir Starmer a lot on this show. We often disagree with some of the policy positions, but one thing he has been fairly good at is sticking to topics which he thinks our Labour's strength, especially when it comes to sort of red wall voters who he thinks are going to be key to winning the next general election. In the last couple of weeks, though, he sort of pitched out new space on migration, which we're going to talk about a bit more later. And now he keeps talking about the EU, He's sort of gone on this international tour talking about the EU. And whether or not you agree with the policy, I'm perfectly okay with closer alignment with the European Union. It it doesn't seem to be fitting with his pattern up to now. What do you think is is going on?
3: the concern perhaps for some is that it's probably the only thing he actually cares about Michael. You know, um, this is actually an issue where he's not willing to bow entirely to the whims of political expediency. So he's willing to defenestrate his left, he's willing to U-turn on policy after policy when it comes to things like public ownership or um, taxing the rich or taxing wealth. But I think it's probably quite intrinsic to his politics, this support for the European Union. And that's why yeah, that's why he's a centrist. That's why he's not, uh, you know, a, a conservative. I think, that, among other things, right, a commitment to the rule of law. You know, he probably feels far more strongly about the Supreme Court um, and uh, you know the UCI, uh, European Convention on human rights, than most Tories do or any Tories, frankly. And also on the European Union, he, he thinks it is it's an inherently good thing. Now, it's impolitic for him to say that, or, or for him to say that you know we should have, um, you know, to, to rejoin the European Union or that we're we're a a part of a broader, you know, European configuration of states, not which you join the EEA, for instance. But he's, he's using the best language he can to sort of get the next best thing, which is this idea of closer or permanent alignment. Um, and, and I think that gets to the heart of it. Now, you can agree or disagree with that as a policy, but I think it does really get to the heart of, of what he cares about politically and what drives and what motivates him. And that is, you know, the EU is a big part of it. We saw that before 2019, you know, I thought he instrumentalised that issue to help get him leadership of the Labour Party. I think it was very much he would win either way. Either there would be a second referendum and he would uh, he he would get what he wanted in that regard, or there wouldn't. Um, and okay, well that's not so great. We'd leave the European Union. We wouldn't, you know, have a second referendum. But I'll be leader of the Labour Party. So I don't think it was as sort of malicious as perhaps one might think. Um, I, I think basically he is. A remain a Eurofar as much as he tries to rebrand himself, that's not going
1: away. I was thinking about this. I was thinking the other option. I do. I, I think that is. I think that's coherent. What you've just said, Aaron. I suppose the, the other option I was thinking is because I was comparing this to taxing the rich, right? Because if 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 what you're you're single-mindedly trying to do is appeal to a certain demographic of of, of older red wall voters, um, because you think that's going to be key, not unreasonably, to winning the next general election, if, if you're sort of directing all your policies at them, then. Taxing the rich is actually quite popular, right? And he's ruled that out. But closer relations with the EU is quite unpopular, and he seems to be ruling that in. So it it, it does seem to be very much against that sort of, what seems to have been guiding his policies and pronouncements up to now. One other explanation is, as opposed to it just being that he genuinely believes this stuff, Aaron, I was thinking is, is maybe it's less about the electorate and more about business. So I suppose one of the reasons he ruled out taxing the rich isn't because he thought that would scare off swing voters, but because he thought that might scare off the Murdoch press and business. And he wanted to show his commitment to to the business community and to you know the press barons that he wasn't going to be going after wealthy people in this country now, you know, it's this commitment to closer alignment with the EU. That's also another signal to business, really, that, that Labour are going to be a bit more serious about growth than the Conservative side. Do you think there's something to that? Might it just be that he's more, he's pitching himself more to business than he is to voters?
3: I think there's something to that. Mind. I think it's a very astute observation. Again, though, it really gets to the heart of, I think, a fundamental deviancy to his politics. So he's saying, we can have closer alignment, but we'll be um, we'll be, uh, we won't be, we will be rule-takers without being rule-makers, which, of course, was their critique of you know joining the EEA while leaving the EU. A lie. It is a lie. If you're a small country of 68 million people, comparatively speaking, um, in relation to a, a market of, what, 400 million plus, i.e. the European Union, uh, you will be a rule-taker if you want closer alignment. It's not like the EU are going to align with our rules. You know, 400 million markets says, you know what, we're going to make sure that we align with the UK. No, we're going to be the ones trying to align with them how do you align by taking their rules their standards um so i think there's a real deviancy still very much at the heart of this. but i think you're right that that's partly it he's trying to assuage business but it gets back to that thing i said earlier about you know him being a centrist which is You know, uh, pro-business, broadly socially liberal, You know, no real big commitments, believes in private enterprise, might moan about inequality, but won't really do anything about it. You know, that is the centrist kind of consensus. And we talk about the centre, and I've said this so many times, as if it's a popular political position, because, of course, it's the centre. Most people must be there. They aren't. Most people are far to the left of Labour on the economy. Certainly, they're far to the left of Parliament. Most Tory votes on some issues, by the way on public ownership of energy or water, a majority of Tories support that stuff, while the Labour front bench doesn't. Uh, while on social issues, they're, they're, I think on some social issues to the right of, of the Conservative leadership, I think the Conservative leadership's catching up with that in order to secure their base. So, uh, you know, I, I think he is very much in the centre. I think it's very much the private business centre, but to, to sort of recapitulate a point I've tried to make for months and months and months and months, that centre, including the ensemble of policies centre right on the economy and sort of centerish left on socially liberal values is actually deeply unpopular. Now you might like bits of that as a grab bag, but as a mass, as a sort of political programme, nobody votes for that in this country. Uh, and and yet regardless of who seems to win, that's what we end up with. You know, and that's the that's the, the hollow ground that Sunak and Stam are racing towards the electorate in that respect are irrelevant. What matters, like you say, is is business. But I would say that's sort of constitutive of this whole idea of of centrism in this country.
1: Yeah, it was interesting the point you were making about this potentially not really being possible when it comes to sort of a, a policy platform. We won't get, we we won't be rule takers, but also we'll be closer to the EU. And a similar point was made by Wolfgang Mischal. So he's a very, I'm um, intelligent commentator. Actually, he's a Euro Intelligence. Used to be in the FT, now writing for the New Statesman. He's argued in the New Statesman that Starmer is suffering from a Brexit delusion. And in the article, he writes this. Keir Starmer's attempt to rewrite the UK-EU relationship is based on a delusion that it is possible to stay outside the single market and the customs union and get a better deal. This is a political lie. It will almost certainly be exposed as such. The biggest illusion yet to be unpicked is Starmer's repeated assertion that a better deal with the EU is available. This is simply not true. There was a lot of vindictive commentary from the EU during the entire Brexit process, but the deal that was eventually agreed was a reasonable third-country trade deal. The two big remaining issues at the time have since been resolved, Northern Ireland and Britain's associate membership at the EU's Horizon Science programme. If your bottom line is that you do not wish to rejoin the single market in the customs union, there really is not a lot more out there. Really interesting view there, this idea that sort of, yeah, we can, I mean, you could call the Labour's position cakeism now, right? Because they're saying, we're not going to be rule takers, we're not going to join the customs union, we're not going to join the single market, but we will have closer alignment. So how? You know, to get closer alignment, you do have to be a rule taker, unless you're part of the bloc, Keir Starmer clearly doesn't want to be part of, you know, the EU bloc, or the single market bloc, or the customs union bloc, so it's difficult to see how we would not be rule takers while, um, you know, converging with the EU. Um, one area where Starmer does want more from the EU is on migration. He said he wants to strike a returns agreement with European countries to prevent asylum seekers from taking small boats across the channel. And he suggested he would be willing to agree in exchange to take some asylum seekers via safe routes from the continent. So a returns agreement with Europe in exchange, we take some migrants from the continent. Now, it's a good policy in my view. Again, though, a politically Risky one. And that's especially because the existing system of asylum in the EU isn't working too well. In particular, political tensions are rising between those countries on the EU's southern border, where asylum seekers tend to arrive, and those countries in Europe's north, which are more insulated from changing migrant flows. That conflict is most obvious on the Italian island of Lampedusa, which lies halfway between Tunisia and Sicily. And this is part of a report from the German news station Deutsche Welle.
4: Lining up in the midday heat, waiting to be transferred to Sicily or the mainland. The migrants arriving by boat on the Italian island of Lampedusa have high hopes for their futures in Europe.
0: I will go to France. I want to go to France to live out my dreams. I want to help out my family, get them out of poverty. Football is my passion, that's why I came here.
4: But this dream may prove hard to fulfil, France's interior minister recently announced plans to seal the country's border in an effort to reduce the number of people crossing into France. Italy's far-right deputy prime minister Matteo Salvini, who is well known for his criticism of the EU, condemned what he called a lack of solidarity from other European countries.
5: I said it at the beginning.
0: What's happening in Lampedusa is the death of Europe. Death because Italy is alone.
4: Aid workers and local authorities on Lampedusa are struggling to provide sufficient food, medical care, and accommodation for the new arrivals. Many of whom are now sleeping on makeshift beds outside the reception center, which has a capacity of only 400 people. And the conditions are proving too much for many. Italy's right-wing government has pledged 45 million euros to Lampedusa to help the island better cope with the migrant arrivals. While its call for more help from other EU countries continues to go unheard.
1: The Italian government say that 127,000 people have reached Italy by sea this year so far. That's double the number last year. And no other EU countries are really showing any desire to share that load. Instead, the bloc has resorted to a familiar tactic, outsourcing the job of policing the EU's border to its more openly authoritarian neighbours. In July, the EU signed a 1 billion euro deal with Tunisia to encourage them to stop migrant boats from leaving their shores. It looks much like a deal Italy signed with Libya in 2017 and which had pretty brutal consequences. A director at Amnesty International has said this about the new Tunisia deal. This agreement was signed with no human rights conditions in place, no assessment or monitoring of its human rights impact, and no mechanism to suspend cooperation in case of abuse. The European ombudsman announced last week that she has requested the commission clarify how it will ensure human rights will be respected by Tunisia. It seems no lessons were learned from the EU's cooperation with Libya, where the bloc's support for Libyan security forces has made it complicit in an infrastructure of abuse against migrants and refugees, including torture, rape, enforced disappearances, unlawful killings, and arbitrary detention. A recent UN investigation found that this may even amount to crimes against humanity. And we should remind ourselves how that Libya deal works. It's been in place since 2017 and this is from a 2018 report by Channel 4 News.
6: In the past, NGO ships like this one would rescue drowning migrants and transport them to Europe where they were welcomed until the political climate changed. The populist government in Italy has refused to let these rescue ships dock. <laughs> The new policy is to fund the Libyan Coast Guard with ships and training to fish the migrants and refugees out of the sea and send them back to Libya. It has worked. The Libyan route has been virtually shut down, but at a terrible human cost, in which European leaders, with their domestic concerns, are complicit. No more suffering! No more suffering! No more more suffering! These are mainly Eritreans, arms crossed, symbolizing a demand for freedom. They want strength of safety in Europe, but instead they've ended up detained in Libya, caught up in a nightmare the world is unaware of and Europe has turned a blind eye to.
1: So the Channel 4 report went on to really show how catastrophic the consequences were for migrants who were taken back to Libya.
6: These Eritrean men are furious after discovering that some of their friends were sold back to the people traffickers by the guards. Things are so tense that the Libyans guarding them use live ammunition to control the crowd. Despite these protests, the traffickers came back, and many of the men pictured here were later taken away. The UN confirmed that people had indeed gone missing from the kums detention centre, and it expressed concern for their well-being. That concern is not misplaced, as these horrific images apparently demonstrate. Migrants sold back to the trafficking gangs are often tortured on camera. A gun pointed at his head, he's being burnt with molten plastic. Or these men being whipped and beaten. Women are not exempt. The videos are posted on social media, emojis included. They demand the victims' families crowdsource ransom payments to keep their relatives alive. Call it the Abu Ghraib of the migrant crisis.
1: As I said, those scenes are from 2018. Uh, the reason I thought we'd, we'd show them again on this show is because I really think this, this controversy is, is very much under-discussed. The idea that the EU signed a deal with Libya when it was you know, in a civil war, and those were the consequences. But this is still the norm when it comes to EU migration policy. Now they have signed a very similar deal with the Tunisian government. Now, the Tunisian government a bit more stable um, than Libya was um, back then. But as we've seen from that comment from the Amnesty International Director, it's still very much the case that there are no human rights guarantees in this deal. Um, However, it's not the plight of refugees in North Africa that appears to be the biggest concern of top European officials, but rather the different attitude to migration in different European governments. The EU's External Affairs Commissioner, Joseph Burrell, has told The Guardian that migration could be a dissolving force for the EU. The Guardian report this. Burrell said nationalism was on the rise in Europe, but this was more about migration than Euroscepticism. Quote, Brexit actually was feared to be an epidemic and it has not been, he said. It has been a vaccine. No one wants to follow the British leaving the European Union. Migration is a bigger divide for the European Union and it could be a dissolving force for the European Union, he said. Despite establishing a shared common external border, we have not been able until now to agree on a common migration policy. He attributed this to deep cultural and political differences inside the EU. Quote, there are some members of the European Union that are Japanese-style. We don't want to mix. We don't want migrants. We don't want to accept people from outside. We want our purity. He said other countries, such as Spain, have a long history of accepting migrants. So, quote, the paradox is that Europe needs migrants because we have so low demographic growth. If we want to survive from a labor point of view, we need migrants. That's a top diplomat in the EU, sort of talking about the challenges of agreeing a common migration policy among the European Union member states. And those member states are currently negotiating a new deal on migration. Now, the sort of basics of that seem to be, obviously, it hasn't been agreed yet, but it would require countries to take a quota of asylum seekers from those southern countries, so Italy and Greece, for example, where people arrive the rest of the countries in the European Union would have to accept a minimum amount of those people arriving or pay 20,000 euros into a central pot for every refugee they refuse to relocate. We haven't really talked about sort of the current migrant row in the European Union because we talk about the row in, in the UK so much. And when it comes to sort of the British government, it all just seems pantomime. You know, it, it seems so, so silly. Suella Braverman out there and sort of just saying anything. It's so clearly... Um, for them to try and win a general election because they're behind in the polls. But you look at the European Union, and it's not that different, right? And they do have a similar situation where you've got people crossing in small boats, and you've got governments of all different complexions when it comes to, you know, from the left to the right. And, you know, the reaction, the policies aren't that dissimilar. Right, so yes, Germany does take a lot more asylum seekers than the UK does. There, are, there is something uniquely pathetic about Britain. But this idea that seems to be sort of the the modus operandi of the European Union is okay. It's uncomfortable for us that all these asylum seekers are arriving. It's also uncomfortable for us when sort of we have to turn people away or when people die in the sea off our shores. So what we're going to do is outsource the problem. We're going to give these authoritarian countries some some money to just try and keep this problem away and 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 forget about the consequences. I and mean, what do you make of it?
3: I think lots of people in this country are, are under a bit of an illusion in regards to how migration policy works um, across the rest of the European Union, across the rest of Europe. Europe has some of the most militarised borders on Earth. And, of course, we often talk about the very dangerous, perilous crossing uh, across the Aegean or across the Mediterranean seas, uh, but all across its land border as well. You know, We saw recently, for instance, Poland's uh, border, Uh, We've seen borders further to the south, Bulgarian border, incredibly securitized borders. Uh, And fundamentally, and again, it's a really difficult thing for Remainers or pro-Europeans in this country to get to grips with. Fundamentally, attitudes around this stuff are really hardening very quickly across Europe. They they just are. You know, you have uh, Marine Le Pen in the last election in France getting 40 percent of the vote. She's a very real candidate to win. Now, people, of course, have been saying that about the Le Pens in France for decades now. Her dad did very well, I believe, in 2002. He made the final two. Of course, he got smashed in the final two. Uh, But it's now a regular feature of French political life to have a Front National, uh, Resemblement, National uh, candidate in the final two. And their vote seems to be pretty solid. It's not insubstantial. Of course, you have Georgia Maloney in Italy. Um, She is not the first kind of person from the far right to be launched to the forefront of the national conversation, prior to that, you have, of course, Matteo Salvini. So in, in two of three of the European Union's largest economies, um, Italy and France, of course, there's Germany as well, the, the largest economic power of the, of the Union. In two of those three countries, you have incredibly powerful far-right movements. But then alongside that, Michael, because, of course, we're talking about Western Europe, is Central and Eastern Europe now? That's often characterised by political sentiment in, in somewhere like Poland, who actually are taking more migrants, both asylum seekers and legal migrants, than they often let on. They often talk, you know, one kind of political game and act very differently, a bit like we do here in Britain with the Dories. Uh, but you have also, you know, the Hungarians and whatnot. Uh, but there is really a, a, a consensus around these these kinds of issues across much of Central and Eastern Europe, which is very different to Western Europe. You know, even, even a Tory here who wants, you know, net zero migration, right? Even they will say, oh, well, we're very welcoming. We're multi, multicultural, multi-ethnic. That's Britain, but we, we're, we're enough now. 80% white, that's enough. That's what they would say. Um, you know, you don't even get that level of being open to integration from various uh, right and far-right parties across, like I say, Central and Eastern Europe. And those are now a growing um, block of votes and, and, and political power in the union. You know, the, the big economic success story of the European Union over the last 10 years is Poland. It, it's, you know, it's done fantastically well in terms of economic growth, uh, while there have been laggards further west. So uh, I think people aren't really honest about the state of the political debate uh, regarding this stuff across the European Union, or the reality of how harshly its borders are policed, uh, if you say that, people say, well, well, we're the same here. We're the same here. Britain's no better. Fine. I think that's broadly correct. But you shouldn't be looking to this union, this bloc, these people as a source of progressive salvation with regards to generating um, a better way of uh, you know, addressing the migrant crisis, which, by the way, will only get worse. You know, I find it very strange, actually, on the left. We say, quite openly, there'll be hundreds of millions of climate refugees this century. There will be, Right. And then at the same time, we say, "Well, this isn't you know the idea of a coherent, coordinated migration policy across Europe. That's not something we have to think about." Well, well it clearly is because you're acknowledging the scale of what's of what's going to happen with regards to climate change. Could be much worse than hundreds of millions, of course, but we are saying ballpark, middle of the century, hundred million plus people. Uh, but right now, the 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 politics that are on the rise in in much of Europe are very much averse to that. So I, like I say, I find it puzzling that progressives here somehow think we should take a lead from the likes of Duda in Poland or Orban in Hungary.
1: What really interests me, and I find what I find so difficult about this story when it comes to the European Union, is because it, it does make it, you know, when you're just talking about the UK, it's very easy to just point at the Tories and say, look, they're they're idiots. And the reason the policy is so brutal and harsh is because they're idiots. But I suppose why I was sort of emphasising that you've got governments of of all different stripes across the European Union basically agreeing to this policy is that no one seems like no one seems to know what to do when it comes to this, right? As you were talking about, you know, hundred million people. We can talk about safe routes, but unless your safe routes are going to let anyone who wants to come come, then you're still going to have people making dangerous crossings. You're still going to have Brutal borders, which are being outsourced to these dictatorships in, in in North Africa, and you know, unless the left are willing to make an argument, which is to say we 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 should take hundreds of millions of, of, of asylum seekers, then well, and lots of these people will be economic migrants because they're coming from you know brutal poverty in in West Africa. Now, I I, I have all sympathy with the argument that you being poor is just as difficult as being from a a, a repressive country, right? Poverty, I think, is just as bad as political repression, but. It's, I just feel like there isn't any, there is no neat answer to this that I feel like I've got a grasp of. And that's why I just find it so sort of like difficult to think about where the hell this is heading. We're going to go straight on. After 20 years of fighting and more than $2 trillion spent, why did the West lose the war in Afghanistan? Well, a popular idea put forward by critics of the 2021 withdrawal was that if the West had just fought longer and harder, then the Taliban could have been defeated. With so-called strategic patience, perhaps the Western-backed Afghan army and Afghan police force could have gained the strength to stand on their own two feet. On that logic, two decades just wasn't enough. We needed 30 or 40 years to defeat the Taliban. However, a new documentary by two Danish filmmakers challenges that narrative. They spent time in a small town in southern Afghanistan where they discovered the problem with the Western-backed police wasn't just their weakness, but rather their corruption and brutality. The film is called Winning Hearts and Minds and it's released this week.
6: He was the most effective man in dealing with Afghan police officers that I had met.
3: But actually, we know that you're Probably a murdering,
7: raping, drug trafficker. Be careful about this If he gets angry, you can't escape. 14-15 <laughs> there som, bogt, som så bliver brugt som seks
1: Der bliver jo sådan et mollys over at det øh, finder sted.
7: Jamen så kan vi alle sammen i baghold. De kan jo vende sig mod os når som helst.
8: Pala, det var. Okay, var
1: You can watch the full documentary on iPlayer. I really do recommend it. Incredible film. Um, and earlier today, I spoke to the two men who made it, Najib Kaja and Martin Tam Anderson. Are both Danish filmmakers. Martin, who you can see on the right, there was also a platoon con- commander in Afghanistan in 2010 as a member of the Danish military. When speaking to them, I began by asking them to introduce the two main subjects of the film, who were brothers Koka and Issa Khan. They ran the police in the town of Musakala.
5: In many ways, you can say they were actually an organized crime family that managed to somehow get into the police and wear police uniforms, which enabled them to actually carry out all of their criminal activity, their harassment of civilians, their revenge killings, kidnappings of of young men that they also raped and killed in many uh, instances. And, and yeah, by, by wearing police uniforms, they could do this and right under the radar from the from the Western forces that they worked alongside with for more than a decade. And these were both initially Danish soldiers, then British, then American soldiers, whom all, to many extents, had a pretty good uh, relationship with them. and And so they managed to carry out this very, very extensive crime syndicate for years without anybody really taking notice of it. Was your understanding that sort of the
1: Western forces didn't understand the nature of these guys or was it a sort of willful blindness? Did they think that they didn't really care if these people were essentially criminals that they were aligning with as long as they weren't the Taliban and as long as they would would fight alongside the West?
5: Yeah, I think that in many ways we saw the, the fight as very black and white. We were fighting the Taliban. Everyone that would join that fight was our allies. Um, so So that made it, very clear to us who who were fighting and who were our friends, but but on the other hand, I think also it was known to a lot of soldiers that that child abuse to some extent was going on with the Afghan national police and, and in some uh, cases also with the Afghan national army. But you know, for some reason, we believed that this was their culture and that therefore we should ignore it, and and so so that made it very difficult for the soldiers on the ground actually to to handle this dilemma. The, the further kind of organized crime networks, the opium dealings and narcotics trade and all that, I don't think that was necessarily known to an ex, to a far extent with the soldiers on the ground. I think they did not have the ability to see through this. But, you know, it, it's it's incredible to believe if this was not known at a higher intelligence level.
1: Yeah, there's a, there's a really interesting sort of scene in the, in the film where essentially the soldiers are told by their superiors, ignore this, it's part of their culture to have these young boys around and then you sort of speak to um, other people with more knowledge of the country who sort of say, "Of course, this is not part of the, the culture and acceptable." So, sort of a real, or even willful misunderstanding, or a sort of naive misunderstanding. The film is, is centered on one town, you know, so it's, it's quite uh, it's 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 quite local, I suppose. The scope of the film. Do you have a sense of how widespread, of how generalizable, what you discovered could be to the rest of the country?
9: Yes, definitely. Uh we are we are also interviewing mike martin who is an expert and uh, wrote a book about this subject and he actually covered and uh, investigated a lot of other districts in Helmand. and uh, you have similar stories from uh, from other places in the same province and you also have reports actually the recent report is cigar a cigar report cigar is a, is it's a committee in the us uh, Which uh, it was actually the US Congress that initiated uh, the cigar and they're doing reports about Afghanistan I think every half year and one of the reports which came out in uh, 2022 is about the Afghan police and they're actually Using other examples to tell the same story uh, About a very corrupt criminal oppressive police force and one of their conclusions is that uh, that because we supported the West supported uh, the Afghan police, a lot of locals, especially in southern rule uh, Afghanistan, they started seeing the Taliban as the liberators.
1: I suppose it, it might seem like a strange question in a way, but if you would sort of entertain it, I mean, is it possible to even ask the question who was worse? You know, the Western-backed government, these Western-backed police forces. Or the Taliban? I mean, people on the ground that you were speaking to, who was the greater or lesser evil? It
9: depends on where you are in Afghanistan. If you're in Kabul, it's definitely the Taliban who are the worst or in Mazar or Herat in the biggest cities. You know, a lot of people, they've lost a lot of things, advantages, freedoms after the Taliban, they toppled the former government. But if you look at the, the southern and eastern Afghanistan, especially the rural parts, the Taliban are definitely the lesser evil. And the government, they are the worst, you know, with people like Koka and Issa Khan representing them. You have similar stories, for example, in Kandahar with Abdul Khali, uh, And you have another police chief who were really brutal. And you have Machiola Khan in Uruzgan province. So this is not just you know, Musakala we are talking about. We are talking about several districts. And as Mike Martin in our documentary says it, it was, you know, you had 60s, hundreds of these cases in Hellman, and more than that in the rest of the country.
1: And I suppose I want to talk about the implications of your documentary. So I suppose one argument could be, oh, the mistake was that the West allied with the wrong people, if they'd been a bit more discerning, if they'd made sure that they hadn't um, sort of allied with people to take over the police who would sort of engage in child abuse and corruption and an extortion if they just found the right Afghans to run the police and ally with everything would have been okay. I suppose the other argument would be to say, if you try and occupy a faraway country that you don't know much about, you will inevitably end up allying with gangsters when trying to, to sort of impose law and order.
5: Where do you fall on, on that divide? Well, it goes back to, the, to the, what I said before about the black and white. If we go into a place and we see everything black and white, this is a fight against The Taliban, this is a fight against when the war started, uh, Al-Qaeda as well. And everyone who's on our side and and willing to to be the enemies of our enemies, they're our friends. And if that's the only level of scrutiny that we have with the people that we walk shoulder to shoulder with, then there is a very, very big risk that we are not vetting these people. We're not understanding who exactly they are. We just only share a common goal and and actually in, in fighting our common enemies at some point we decided to start a nation building project in afghanistan around 2005 2006 and at that point we were already allied with these types of people we were allied with warlords and drug lords and former mujahideen fighters and all sorts of people that had helped us topple the the taliban regime and and in 2005 we then decided to turn it into a nation building project and we were we had to base it on these people so we started Building a democratic process on a bunch of people that were not really interested in a democratic process, who were warlords and drug lords and so on, and, and 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 when you look at it like that, the the, the whole project was doomed from from the beginning. So you were focusing
1: on a fairly rural part of or a fairly rural town in, in in southern Afghanistan. The situation in Kabul quite different. The people in Kabul didn't want the Taliban to to return or don't seem to have wanted the Taliban to return. And there's a very good argument that their life has sort of dramatically, or their, you know, their life chances have dramatically declined since the fall of the Western-backed government. Are these two completely separate situations or was there sort of a role that the Western-backed Afghan government in Kabul had when it came to regulating what was going on um, in in towns, in places such as Helmand province?
9: They definitely had uh, a responsibility in these areas. Uh, the former president Hamid Karzai he leaned on these warlords, uh, war criminals, people who had committed atrocities before the Taliban came to power. The Taliban came to power in the mid mid nineties because of the atrocities and oppression of these groups. So it's actually you know an echo of history. What we are seeing right now is something that is repeating itself. We've seen it before. So 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 Hamid Karzai had a had a responsibility. And uh, later on, Ashraf Rani, uh, the president who fled the country right after the Taliban, they uh, they knocked on, the, on Kabul's doors and uh, he, he also had a responsibility and uh, the problem is that the whole, as Martin said, the whole project was built on the wrong uh, fundament, the fundament foundation, you know, and if you could say you know it's really difficult to 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 look at history a parallel history but if it had started with some other kinds of politicians other kinds of militias militias which were built you know from from the foundation you know without all you know all these warlords and elements that had had a very bad influence on afghan society maybe we would have a different development so uh,
5: yeah I think also an important point is we were very keen to have a military victory against the Taliban. And and very early, I think it was clear to a lot of, especially soldiers in Afghanistan, that we would not end up by killing every single Taliban and then, you know, creating peace in that way. But we never, ever went down the path of a peaceful solution with the Taliban and, and integration process and and a process where there could be stability and where, you know, somehow Taliban could be integrated within the government and in, in order to keep peace that way. But we never really looked at that. We never really understood that there was maybe a peace solution uh, that we could have worked for uh, in the long run. The chance was there actually when
9: uh, you know the West had the upper hand, the Afghan government and the West had the upper hand uh, for many years and could have negotiated with the Taliban from you know from a, from a better position but didn't do it and ju- they started the dialogue with the Taliban, when the Taliban got stronger, they didn't have any interest in
5: negotiating. And of course, this looks somehow easy to Go looking back uh, from from this position. But of course, it would have also demanded that we would have accepted a solution for Afghanistan that was not a democracy kind of built on our principles, but an Afghan version of a democracy that would incorporate someone like the Taliban. And, and you know, maybe we just didn't have the stomach for that.
1: That was Najib Kadjar and Martin Tam Anderson speaking to me earlier today. As I say, you can check out that documentary, Winning Hearts and Minds, on iPlayer. I, I really do recommend it. Let's go straight on to our next story. Rupert Murdoch stepping down as chair of News Corp and Fox has prompted an assessment of his long career. This was Owen Jones' take on Sky News.
5: How do you think Rupert Murdoch's going to be remembered?
0: Well, he's the, Rupert Murdoch is the most poisonous individual of my lifetime. Uh, 20 years ago, just as an example, on the road to war in Iraq. Um, Rupert Murdoch owns 175 newspapers all around the world, and all 175 newspapers backed the Iraq war. They softened up public opinion for what was a calamity which took the lives of hundreds of thousands of people and unleashed terrible blood and chaos. And why do I mention that? Uh, Because it shows that the idea that we have this free press uh, with all, all these newspaper outlets and media outlets around full of rigorous journalism coincidentally, all backed this catastrophic war. Many other examples, though. In the 1980s, when the bodies of hundreds of thousands of gay men were being ravaged by AIDS all over the world, his newspapers whipped up the most vile bigotry against gay men. If you think about the United States, uh, we mentioned uh, Fox News. Their peddling of conspiratorial nonsense about the Obama administration, the Islamophobia... That paved the way for Donald Trump, who he spoke to every single week when he was president. Or if you think about the climate emergency, spreading climate denialism about what is an existential threat to human civilization, his attacks on migrants, refugees.
9: you're you're, a big fan then, right? Huge fan.
0: But I think it's really important we say this because this isn't just some media owner. This guy is a politician. He's a very, very powerful political figure who has, without being elected by a single person, had a huge disruptive... And pernicious and poisonous impacts in our democracy, Australian democracy, US democracy, and democracies all over the world.
1: Well, that's very well put, as usual, by Owen Jones. Aaron, I really wanted your thoughts on, on, on Murdoch resigning. I know you have a lot of thoughts about Rupert Murdoch, often quite a lot of anecdotes as well from various books you've read. What are your sort of principal thoughts um, on the week he has stood down as chair of News Corp?
3: Well, it's very alluring when you're on the left to talk about structures and talk about big trends and historical inevitability and materialism and blah 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 well you know they didn't do this it was broader factors at play blah 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 with Rupert Murdoch it's something of an exception Michael Rupert Murdoch as an individual I think played a greater role than probably anybody else in the pernicious politics of greed and effectively theft which has come to characterise the Anglo-American economies over the last 40 years. You know, he, he entered this country in 1969. He buys News of the World. He buys The Sun. He buys a bunch of other outlets, too. Um, he bought The Sun, by the way, which until then had been a Labour-supporting newspaper, so hard to believe. Uh, he promised that they would always back the Labour Party. Of course, that promise didn't last very long. Here is one story which I think tells you a great deal about the kind of man he is, the kind of operations he ran and the extent to which they transformed British media and public life. He had an editor of The Sun, Larry Lamb. He was the editor of The Sun twice. When I say Larry Lamb, it's not George Lamb's dad, that handsome older gentleman who goes on, you know, occasional TV dramas, different chap who's now passed away. Uh, He was Murdoch's first editor at The Sun. He leaves for a few years. I think he comes back in, I think, maybe 75, and he, he stays all the way through to the early 1980s. Now, Larry Lamb... Um, after 1977, started to write, write speeches for Margaret Thatcher, who at that point, of course, was leader of the opposition. So, the editor of the Sun was writing speeches for the leader of the opposition. Not just talking to them, or just interviewing them, writing the speeches. Okay, uh, people like. Um, Adam Bolton, who was defending uh, Rupert Murdoch, of course, he was previously an employee of Rupert Murdoch, they'd like to say, well, he's just reflecting the their audience and uh, you just don't like working class Britain. That, that, that's what they think. You like to blame Murdoch instead. Well, that doesn't really make much sense when Larry Lamb is both reporting on a speech and writing it. What that means, Adam, is that they don't have respect for their readers. They, they think they're suckers. They think they can propagandise them and that their readers are idiots. They think the readers really it's right, frankly, if they're doing that. So he writes speeches for, for Lady Thatcher um, from 77 onwards. On the day of the election in 1979, where, of course, Margaret Thatcher comes to office, she entered 10 Downing Street, Labour are booted out. Jim Callaghan is, you know, is out on his backside. On the day of the 1979 general election, this is in the sun, remember? Larry Lamb writes a 1600 word piece about why Sun readers should vote for the Tories. 1,600 words, Okay, This isn't the London Review of Books. This isn't Book Forum. This isn't an economist special issue. This is the Sun newspaper. The editor writes a 1,600-word piece about why their readers should go and vote for the Tories, who he's been writing speeches for for the last two years. Who do you think gets a knighthood in the Queen's birthday honours, 1980? Larry Lamb. So what you have is a profound corruption and venality injected into British public life as a result of Rupert Murdoch entering this country's media environment. I I think he is an extraordinarily unique and toxic and malevolent presence in it. Um, Like I say, that one incident, that one story of Larry Lamb, uh, of the, the fusion of politics and media, of effectively corruption, of effectively misleading and lying to your readers by default, and treating journalism as an extension of propaganda, uh, that was very unusual before Rupert Murdoch entered Britain. Uh, and it's now the norm. And he's a major reason why.
1: That will be one of the main legacies, right? Undermining democracy, debasing politics. The other, I think, will be the serious damage he did to the fight against climate change, right? So the decision by Fox News in the mid-2000s to say, oh, actually, what we're going to do is we're going to cast doubt on this. You know, you'd have the Al Gore movie out. There was a growing sort of consensus that climate change was a real threat, that we needed to take early action so that we wouldn't have to face catastrophe down the line. Rupert Murdoch, you know, almost single-mindedly sort of decides, no, we're not having any of this. We are going to give wall-to-wall coverage of climate skepticism. Then that obviously sort of takes over. Well, I mean, it's it's not as if George W. Bush needed any sort of encouragement to be a climate skeptic. But you have this huge block of the American right-wing press and right-wing leaders sort of being massive opponents of any kind of climate action. Obviously, if we'd taken this action in, in the early noughties, it would be so much cheaper. It would be so much easier. We wouldn't be having the same kind of extreme weather we're seeing now. And getting to net zero by 2050 would have been a piece of piss. would have been really easy. It's going to be quite difficult now because we left it so long. I think in Australia, it's even more dramatic because there, what you had was, was politicians who were planning to take some kind of climate action. So Kevin Rudd was a, a Labour prime minister. He was going to introduce a carbon tax. Then the Murdoch press, they actually owned two thirds of the newspapers in Australia. So even more than they do in the UK. A sort of single-minded campaign against him, he ends up having to resign. It's similar to what you were saying, Aaron. It's almost difficult to comprehend sort of the 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 personal culpability that someone can have that sort of is 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 separate from sort of structural forces. Obviously, under capitalism, it was always going to be very difficult to deal with climate change, of all these vested interests who who don't want you to to tax carbon, who don't want you to sort of try and Move away from 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 fossil fuels. Lots of vested interests involved. It was always going to be difficult, but it didn't need to be as difficult as it was. And one of the reasons was Rupert Murdoch.
3: That's entirely right, Michael. And I think you know, in a broader in a broader sense, that is his primary legacy. You know, he he probably slowed down responding to climate change in the Anglo American economies by several decades. Today, you know, we talk about British emissions, how high they are. Of course, you know, the Tories love to say how much they've fallen in recent years, and they are quite low. Um, I think the CO two emissions per head about twice what they are in this country, in Australia, twice what they are in this country in Canada, and twice what they are in this country in the United States. You know, the English-speaking world is doing appallingly. Britain is, you know, the, 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 the best in class when it comes to English-speaking countries. And Australia, Michael, you have a country of, what, 30 million people, immense solar potential, uh, and yet they're producing twice the CO2. They don't need to heat their homes. It's a very warm country. Yet they're producing twice the CO2 emissions that Britain does. I mean, that's absolutely extraordinary. And Australian politicians, they'll point to China. They haven't got a leg to stand on. They just haven't got a leg to stand on. Um, And also with the United States, Michael, you know, the creation of Fox News in the early 1990s is a game changer in the political culture of that country. Of course, you have Republicans before then. Of course, you have Reaganism. Nobody's saying that somehow America was a utopia before then. But if you look at the tenor and the standard of debate, even in, you know, the 84, 88 elections, compare it to what it became really within 10 years, 15 years. Um, the attacks, for instance, you saw on um, John Kerry with regards to his military record and whatnot. Um, extraordinary. I think, frankly, the um, the 2000 election was was stolen. We don't talk about that nearly enough. Fox News played a central role in that. Um, and, you know, there, there are various other players in this story. We can talk about Tucker Carlson or we can talk about um, you know, the gentleman who was basically at the top of Fox for years, working on behalf of, uh, of Rupert Murdoch. But those are pieces on a chessboard for Mr. Murdoch. If you were to say the single worst thing he did is clearly the creation of Fox News in the United States. And the extent to which that is shaped and warped, how we under- understand news more broadly, Michael, really can't be understated. You know, this idea of the, the ticker going at the bottom of your screen with breaking news you know that was innovated by Fox News on the day of the 9/ 11 attacks. And by the way, they weren't the number one news network in the United States until the 9 /11 attacks. They weren't. what that did, that foreign policy agenda, the war on terror, Bush, what it gave them all of a sudden was a, a, a sequence and a set of talking points, and f- fundamentally, theme-mongering, which, which was for them great content. And it, it got them to the top of the charts, you know, bigger than MSNBC, bigger than CNN. Um, and, and that was a hugely destructive thing for the United States. You know, I think, I think really in the next several decades, the United States, if it doesn't slide into civil war, and I don't think it will, but I think it will slide into something like civil warfare, which is to say constant low level, um, you know, conflagrations. Uh, you know, we're looking at election in 2024, Michael, whoever wins, 30, to 40 percent of the U.S. electorate will say it's been stolen. You know, that whole environment is a result of Fox News, I would I would argue. Of course, conservatism existed before that. Climate denialism existed before that, but it has warped and transformed um, the common sense of English speaking politics so much. Uh, I think it's almost, it's, it's hard to get your head around. It. And when the man dies, I don't say this about many people, by the way, when the man dies, it will be, be a fantastic day for humanity. Okay. You should of course never say that about somebody, but it will be a fantastic day for humanity. Because like you say, the choices made by him and his companies 20 30 40 years ago have locked in millions of deaths when it comes to climate change i don't like to overly dramatize with this stuff and you know because uh, the left kind of has a reputation for doing that so you try and be somber you try and be analytical i think those are the facts actually i think when there is an accounting of political failure by the planet and um, looking back on the 20th and 21st centuries you know that guy when you're looking at the worst characters i mean he's I think he's pretty
1: much at the top. Rupert Murdoch's legacy, of course, will be to make the media even more in the interest of billionaires than it ever was. I mean, we didn't really have billionaires when he was buying those newspapers, was it? But he shifted the media to be more and more in favour of the rich and powerful. We're, of course, trying to do the opposite. Um, What do we need to keep doing that? We need more support from you guys. We are people-powered media. Um, We are funded by our viewers, not by billionaire oil barons. And next year is going to be a pretty big year. General election in this country, presidential election in the United States. We really do want to get 5,000 extra supporters. Um, so if you aren't already a supporter, please do sign up at slash support We ask for the equivalent of one hour's wage a month, or whatever you can afford. Um, the link is in the description. If you look on social media today, you'll also see we've we've got a launch video for our fundraiser. So so go and share that, and encourage other people to sign up. Final story. Junior doctors and consultants went on their first ever joint strike this week. And there is little sign of the government and unions reaching an agreement. It's been at least 100 days since Health Secretary Steve Barclay last met with union leaders. The Tories still think they're on the right side of the argument, though. On BBC Question Time, this was Government Minister Kevin Hollinrake.
7: Our doctors should be looking after patients, not stood on picket lines. uh, There has been 900,000 cancelled appointments across the NHS, and it is absolutely unacceptable. What the government has done, it said it will stand by the independent peer body recommendations. For junior doctors, there's an 8.8% increase. The average salary for a junior doctor is £55,000. For a consultant, the average is £130,000. We absolutely need these doctors back in the health service, It's I think it's unacceptable that uh, they can put people's uh, safety, people's lives at risk in terms of not being in the hospitals that where they're paid to be.
1: So how are the, you gonna do
7: it? That's the, the thing, because been, we've, we've they keep let,
1: going on strike and the BMA is saying it might go on strike indefinitely. Okay. How how are you going to resolve
7: this? We've already legislated. There's something called the minimum service level bill, which is opposed by Labour, which requires, um, where we specify it, it requires certain parts of the economy, such as our train drivers, such as our healthcare workers, and we're consulting on that now, to put in place a minimum number of people to look after the patients in those hospitals.
1: Of course, it's a bit rich hearing the Tories talking about a minimum service in the NHS. They've run down the NHS for 13 years, you have to wait 12 hours if you go to A&E in the winter. That's got nothing to do with strikes. That's got to do with mismanagement, right? I don't need to make these points for you because there was a nurse in the audience. Um, She's very articulate and she wasn't impressed.
8: I'm a nurse. Um, Well, let's hear what you think about it. I voted strike in the last ballot. When I'm balloted again, I will vote strike again and I'll do that continually until pay talks open and they're realistic. We are striking for pay We are striking because we feel undervalued, but we're also striking for patient safety. So when we're accused of putting patients at risk, I say patients are at risk every single day of the week. We've got 7 million people on waiting lists. We've got 140,000 vacancies. People are dying on waiting lists. People are dying in the back of ambulances. And this cannot go on. The government need to get real and address the situation. And are you
1: convinced by what you're hearing from, from either party here?
8: As for the minimum Minimal Service Levels Bill, what I say to that is unions on strike days, they put in minimal service levels already. This is nothing new. And I would say we welcome the government saying we want minimal staffing, but we want minimal staffing every single day of the week. I've worked in the NHS for almost 20 years. I did shifts nearly 15 years ago that were 27 hours long because there was no nurses to take over because we were so short-staffed. Now, that was nearly 15 years ago, and here we are now with the government talking about minimal service levels. Mm. Frankly, that is an insult to us okay. all. OK, let, let, let's <laughs> hear a bit
1: Aaron, these strikes don't seem to be going anywhere. I mean, it was interesting, actually, that comment was from from a nurse. They they ended up sort of a, a, agreeing to the pay rise, which was offered to them, not before sort of dividing the workforce. I don't think that was a good news story in any shape or form. That seemed to me the Tories trying to you know, destroy the the morale of nurses in this country, which seems like a pretty silly thing to do. Um, but when it comes to the doctors, um, this dispute doesn't seem to be ending any time soon. Um, where do you see it going?
3: Yeah, it's hugely interesting, isn't it, with regards to, for instance, the rail strikes. Um, um and i i think there will be just more nhs strikes generally whether that's consultants or junior doctors or nurses like you say the nurses ones ended for now uh, but when you've had a 20% fall in your pay in real terms between 2010 and 2023 um you know i think people are going to keep on coming back for that they, they don't want, nurses do not want to get permanently poorer you know they've got 56000 pounds worth of debt newly graduating nurses so they have a lot to be angry about um and what's really interesting michael with regards to for instance the rail strikes is i think I think the government has basically subsidized um, these private rail opera- operators to the sum of around £1.5 billion. Um, and I think with regards to junior doctors, I think it's about um, it's cost, they think, it's cost about a billion. So you're looking at a situation, really, with regards to rail strikes, with regards to junior doctor strikes, they've spent the money that would have paid for the pay rises to stop the pay rises, right? And that tells you something deeper is going on here which is that no matter the cost, this is not about saving money. This is not about saving money because they've spent the money. No matter the cost, they can't show that industrial action works, that striking works at scale. And I think this is right. Mick Lynch has said this. If there wasn't that intervention and that help from government, particularly, for instance, for the private rail operators, they would have given up by now. They would not have been able to withstand the industrial action they faced from their workers over the last 12 months. They're still there because the government's helping them. Like I said, because strikes cannot be shown, demonstrated, to work, to get people what they want. And then that leads you to a, a final question, Michael, which is, well, look, the government says that we have privately operated rail in this country. We have privately operated rail. Okay. Firstly, we can have publicly owned operators from abroad providing services here, but we can't have an operator owned by us, the British public. Secondly, they're privately operated, but they get subsidies from government while paying dividends to shareholders. What private company works like that? Thirdly, when their workers want better pay, the government steps in to, to stem the losses and to, 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 to basically make sure they don't give in to demands of, of striking workers. These aren't private companies. You know, privatization. They're not private companies. We're in a very weird zombie gray zone of private and public. When it comes to things like water, energy, rail, you saw it with with water recently. You know, the Tories are saying, well, to build more houses, we'll have to allow the house builders to put more shit into rivers. OK, well, to do that, it means we'll have to stop farmers and water companies doing it. So we'll give them more money to not do it. And I think the part of that plan, um, which Labour didn't sign off on, it cost £700 million pounds, everybody went crazy, oh, Labour don't want to build houses. That would have meant the taxpayer giving private water companies £400 million to not put shit in the water. These same private water companies pay off dividends. Their bosses earn massive amounts of money. They don't do their job. Bills are up constantly. They've increased, I think, 50% more than inflation since privatization in the early 1990s. But the government is still giving them hundreds of millions of pounds in taxpayer money to not put shit in rivers. So again, private companies. What private company operates like that? Again, it's about failure of the media, Michael. The media has not held this bizarre system we have of failed privatisation, they've not scrutinised it properly and they've not held it accountable. You know, you didn't ever hear this, that these rail strikes would have worked if the government wasn't using taxpayer money to prop up privately owned rail companies. Those are the facts. Um, And and, and they're doing it, like I say, for political reasons, not to save money, not to help the taxpayer. I'll leave you with this. Apparently, we have have the most expensive rail uh, tickets in Europe. We have the most expensive... Rail tickets. If you want to go somewhere on the train, it costs more in Britain than anywhere else in Europe. But apparently, we can't afford to have ticket offices. So, we have the most expensive tickets, but we can't afford to have ticket offices. There's a scam going on, people.
1: Thank you, everyone, for watching this evening. Have a fantastic weekend. The show will be back on Monday. You've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramediacom support.